Welcome to another audio update from the Canadian Psychological Association. My name is Eric Bowman. I'm the communications officer at the CPA. And the dual crises of COVID and racial injustice are really showing us that people in marginalized communities, communities of color, are not well represented in the field of mental health. And they need people that they can turn to who have a shared lived experience, who have gone through the same things that they have. We need to do that in school. We also need to be able to train mental health professionals now uh, to be able to help people for whom racial injustice, for whom racial trauma is one of the reasons that they are reaching out to seek help. My guest today has answers to both of those questions and is running a program that has been successful so far in diversifying the psychology program at the school where she works. My name is Anusha Kassan. I'm currently an associate professor um, with a high-impact position in child and youth mental health in the School School and Applied Child Psychology program in the Faculty of Education at the University of British Columbia. The first thing I wanted to talk to you about um, is the sort of general lack of diversity in psychology, right? Mm -hmm. Um, we don't tend to have a lot of people of color who can speak to people of color and come from the same place that they do. And I'm wondering how you think that affects the profession as a whole. Yeah, totally. Um, you're absolutely right. There are not, um, many people of color, many indigenous people, many queer people, and all of those intersections, they're all underrepresented in psychology training and in the psychology workforce. Um, We, you know, as far as I know, these are not numbers that we have or can collect in Canada. But um, for example, I was doing a little bit of background reading and there was a study that came out in 2018 in the US that stated that 84% of the psychology workforce was white. Um, and anecdotally, that would match what I see um, in my program, in my student body, in uh, the conferences I attend. And <clears throat> I don't want to imply that white equals no diversity. Um, there's certainly lots of other facets of diversity that are not visible. But as you know, you talked about people of color, that's pretty clear that that's absent. Right. Right. Um, So I think, you know, there's just so many places to start with this. But um, I think the the primary place is to look at the history of our discipline Um, and like who founded psychology and what for what purposes. And it took, you know, those were white folks, particularly men. And it took a long time before diversity was even part of the conversation. Um, And that happened, you know, as far as I'm aware, in the early 70s in the U.S. by a small group of people of color who said, you know, we're not represented here. Our communities are not represented here, so we have to do something. Um, But still to this day, the statistics are disproportionate. Right. So um, in terms of what that does, like, again, it's not it's more complex than having bums and seats. I shouldn't talk like that. Having people fill those spots. Right. Increasing the diversity is great. 
that's the first step. But then it's making sure that folks are well trained to be able to work with their communities. Right. So um, people of color also need training to provide psychological healing to different people, different communities. And even people that are not from those communities can be trained to do that work. But it's a complex interplay of how folks, you know, have to receive the training and be able to do the work in a sensitive manner. Right. Um, Uh, We always say that, you know, we wish there were more Indigenous psychologists who could be in Indigenous communities and understand those communities. But until we get there, the psychologists that do work in those communities need to learn how to do that uh, in a respectful way ahead of time in a appropriate way, right? Yes, because if you think of, you know, the fact that it takes minimum five years for someone to get through grad school, and then there's a few more hoops for them to jump before they become registered psychologists, um, we're a ways away from increasing that capacity. Um, and that even implies that you have Indigenous students in undergrad who are willing to go to graduate school and who will get into grad school. Let's actually start before school even begins, right? The mm-hmm. decision to take psychology as uh, as your undergrad in the first place. Uh, mm-hmm. And you and I have spoken a little bit about this already where uh, there are many communities uh, who aren't interested in the field mostly because psychology as a profession uh, hasn't necessarily treated those communities very well in the past, right? Um, in the 1700s, uh, there was an endorsement of slavery, the almost uh, a justification of it. Residential schools in Canada, harmful practices toward the LGBTQ community. Um, and so that, I think, might be the place to start before you even get into school what can we do to encourage those people to now take over this profession? Yeah, yeah. That's a great um, place to start. And you're absolutely right. Psychology has been harmful, you know, let's say, hopefully not purposefully, but they have been harmful um, to multiple communities. And you've named, you know, many of those atrocities. Um that coupled with the fact that the worldviews of many people in minoritized communities don't fit that of psychology, right? So the what do you mean the by philo- that? The philosophical underpinnings of how psychologists generally believe people experience distress, heal from that distress, or get treatment from that distress is very different from how, you know, for example, when I grew up, how you healed and how you found strength and solace in community and in family. Um, So that, you know, it's, it's it's much more complex than an individualistic, collectivistic split. But if you use that as a blanket example, you see that, like, even coming into psychology, you have to think about your world differently if you're a minoritized person coming into psychology. So I think there's been damage done and also people don't necessarily have the same worldview as psychology does or many psychologists do. 
And so it's difficult to even think of psychology as a profession. Um, and then there's also so much stigma about mental health across, you know, the world, but in a lot of minoritized communities as well. And so it's not always seen as a viable choice. Right. Um, I also have colleagues, you know, um, colleagues and friends who are Indigenous scholars who sometimes discourage students from pursuing psychology because they've been through the process themselves and they worry that students have, will have to colonize themselves um, and work within the system for X amount of years and, and it'll take them just as long to then decolonize themselves. Right. Um, do you have any ideas as to how that could be addressed? Well, yeah, I think, um, you know, you, you asked that question earlier, like how can we um, change the profession or how can we, you know, um, allow minoritized folks to have a bigger say or a bigger role in psychology and part of it has to do with leadership, I think, and having um, all kinds of people at the policy uh, table, all kinds of people developing curriculum, and you know, truly changing the course content because um, what we address is one part of what we need to know about psychology but so many pieces are missing in our training about how to work with diverse families and communities, how to understand different ideas of well-being. And um, unfortunately, if we're saying that there's a lack of student diversity, there's also a lack of faculty diversity. So the people that are in a position to change the curriculum are also coming from predominantly dominant identities. Right. Uh, now, now we're talking about school specifically, and uh, I know that you've done, uh, you, you have a program to try to address the lack of diversity in school psychology. Uh, what are you doing to address that, and how is that working? Right. So I've just transitioned into this program. I was actually pleasantly surprised to see how many um, plans they already had in place to increase diversity among their student body. Um, but in the previous position I held, which I just left six months ago, um, at the Counseling Psychology Program at the University of Calgary, we have been through a five-year process of changing our training program. And so that took a lot of steps. Um, the first step was simply deciding as a group that this is where we were going, that we, so many of us held social justice values and we felt like it was important to make that central in our program because we were doing the research anyways, we were training the students in that way anyways. And so we kind of you know, had a conversation as a group like, should we be a program that is led by a social justice mission statement? So we agreed on that. It was not a unanimous decision, but it was a majority right. decision. 
And from there, there was multiple steps. So we um, created a definition for what this meant to us as a program and how we understood social justice and how we looked for it. So it wasn't, it's not as simple as, you know, increasing again, I hate to talk like this, but it's not just getting bums in seats. Mm -hmm. It's not just increasing diversity, you know, diversity of lived experience is critical and it's important. It is so enriching to a classroom um, and it, it should be there all the time. But there's also other types of diversity that's not as visible or other types of diversity that is scholarly in terms of bringing in graduate students or faculty members that have been studying, you know, specific diversity related topics for a long time. Um, and also looking at advocacy and outcomes of our research, not just the classic, like how do we improve psychological practice, but how do we reach policymakers and make, make changes at bigger levels. Right. So that was the next step from there. The most important piece that I think the program did, which was game changing in terms of increasing diversity was changing our admission criteria. Okay. And this is where it was a little rock and roll within the program <laughs> because you know, um, something like lowering your GPA, your minimum GPA for admissions, that was not well received by everyone. Um, right. And, you know, it's a complex conversation, but allowing folks, you know, who don't have a 4.0 or even a 3.75 um, to be admitted to the program, understanding that, you know, that's not the only piece. So, think some classic pieces that we look at are like GPA, scholarships, publication history, research experience, clinical experience, GREs, um, how well somebody writes their um, in interest statement. Those are some pretty classic markers of what we look for and in I, strong graduate students. Mm -hmm. I imagine that those markers exist because they're quantifiable, right? They're easily understood as a yes. criteria across the board, but trying to find things that are not so quantifiable must be a bit more of a challenge. Yes. So, um, but some things that we did do, which, you know, I guess they're a little grayer, but they can still be measured in some capacity is considering community engagement um, and activism as experience that we want to see. So not just clinical type experience of somebody who's been a peer mentor or who's worked in a traditional helping profession as a tutor or an aide or something like that, but also considering work that people have done in their communities, um, in their churches, in their temples um, as experience that we want to see in our students so that would get them you know points so to speak um right. we also you know um there are the noises you were talking about <laughs> um we also um started accepting reference letters from indigenous elders or community leaders in in the field 
which is very different than usually you want those classic references from professors. Right. right? Um, so that was another shift. And then looking for not just interest in social justice, whether that's lived or scholarly, but seeing that explained and come alive in their mission statement um, versus, you know, just saying I'm interested in this, but showing how they've been involved and interested in social justice work. Okay. So, you know, we didn't take away the classic markers, but we also added other markers so that now a well-rounded applicant, you know, even though they might not have a 4.0, they might have a reference from an Indigenous elder. And so you put those together, they end up with more support or they end up, you know, higher in the rankings versus before they only, ha they didn't have, they couldn't provide that reference letter from their Indigenous elder and they still didn't have the 4.0. Right. So they never made it to the top of the ranking list. Now, you said that this has been the game changer. Uh, how is it working? Uh, have you Has it been going on long enough to know for sure? Well, um, yes and no. So it has been going on long enough that two, at least two full cohorts have been admitted under this new rubric. And clearly, there's more diversity in the room, full stop. Um, when I walked into my first class there, I was, I mean, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was a little shocked as the first, you know, my first year as an assistant professor. Um, and there were 12 students around the room. And the first 10 were literally, you know, I don't want to minimize who they were, but it looked very copy paste. Right. Um, all young women, all in their early 20s, all in hetero relationships, you know. Um, and then there was like maybe one person who identified as a lesbian and one person who was a second generation immigrant to Canada, you know, something like that. Like it was clear that there wasn't much diversity both visible and invisible. Right. And so if you looked at the cohort now, you would see lots of color, lots of spice, but you would also hear um, students who are doing research in so many different areas, whether that's with um, autistic children, whether that's with people in um, ethical non-monogamous relationship, whether that's with immigration communities, um, and the list goes on. So it's safe to say that we've been successful in increasing the diversity. But the, oh, sorry. Oh, no, I'm just saying that's that's good to hear. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, that's definitely a success. The other piece of it, though, is being ready to take care of those students and to train them well, mm -hmm. right? Because the traditional curriculum is not going to make sense to them. Right. When you train them to do an assessment on uh, a measure that has, hasn't even been validated with diverse communities, they're going to question how they can apply that with their clients. Right. So there's a whole other piece of work to be done on the faculty's part to start addressing the curriculum side of things. And hopefully that uh, 
is the next step. And once that gets done, then we can move forward maybe on a larger scale with this sort of program. I, I certainly hope so. Um, something that's currently happening right now is kind of a program evaluation that's um, from a teaching and learning grant that we received where you know we're doing this assessment of all of our course outlines to look at how well they address diversity needs and interviewing students at different stages of the training to get their experience um, interviewing field supervisors to get their experience and so once we have all that data gathered we'll be in a better position to know how to continue to improve um, and it would certainly be great to see that happening in other programs and that's certainly on my list of things to do in my new program <laughs> for sure and best of luck with that i hope it works out uh, equally well uh thank I, you now moving on a little bit past school we do mm -hmm. still currently have the makeup that we do psychologists across canada and yes at the moment there's an awful lot of racial trauma uh, that people across this country and across North America and across the world are dealing with uh, in the wake totally. of, you know, the murder of George Floyd and all of these uh, other things that we're seeing constantly on the news. And yeah. uh, your the situation with the, um, with Mr. Singh yesterday yes. um, in the news who called um, someone racist. It's constantly daily. There's new, new information popping up yeah yeah and that's kind of amazing i mean even with uh, yeah with jagmeet singh yesterday we called a block mp racist and got kicked out of the house for it because calling mm -hmm. someone racist is somehow worse than saying something that is racist it seems right um yeah. it's kind of a remarkable thing and i people are affected by this uh and you were suggesting to me uh, earlier that the psychologists that we have right now, even though many of them aren't, uh, you know, from those communities and from that background and they don't have that frame of reference, there are things they can do to learn uh, to help people who are uh, that maybe we need to be pushing a little bit more. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? What can a psychologist right now do so that they're more able yeah. and more equipped to help um, someone in the black community or the indigenous community? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I don't want to make it seem like no one's doing this or equipped or, you know, there's certainly many of us who have dedicated our life to, to doing this scholarly work um, and other folks who have multiple experiences with minoritized identity, oppression, um, those sorts of things who, you know, have a, a place to start from. Um, so I hope I'm not making it seem like, you know, um, psychologists don't get it and are not there yet, but many have not had the training. I think that's something that we can say for sure. Right. Um, and so I think the place to start, which is key to our training as psychologists, is ourselves, is our own self-awareness, our own reflexivity, taking a good look in the mirror to identify our blind spots, our unconscious bias, our internalized racism, all of those, you know, societal messages we grew up with, which we now hold, whether that's conscious or not. 
Right. And that's, you know, when, when a lot of us train students, that's the place where we start. Because you being self-aware before you walk into the room with the client is going to help you kind of understand where your reactions are coming from. And it's going to help you um, get closer to a place where you're not imposing your own agenda, your own biases, your own values on your client. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've seen that in student training. training. Excuse me. Um, where you know a psychology student is trying to help a client assert themselves or figure out what they want to do, or you know pushing that individualistic lens when that client needs to consider a whole bunch of other factors like their family, their community, um, before they can make a decision. Right. So I'm digressing a little bit, but I think. Um, yeah, taking, you know, a hard look in the mirror to dig deep and identify all of our own racist ideologies, beliefs, attitudes, um, which have been ingrained to us, taught to us over the years. Um, that to me, that's the best place to start. And that should be in line with the training that we receive because we're the tool of change in, in the psychological relationship. And so if we're not, you know, on top of our own beliefs, attitudes, reactions, biases, then it's going to be very hard to work with that client in an ethical way. Right. Um, now, my, my worry with that is that I am constantly being told, I'm not a psychologist myself, but I'm now working with them all the time. And I'm constantly <laughs> being reminded that psychologists are extremely risk averse, that uh, that is a hallmark of psychology in general. And I also see, and I see this in friend groups, I see this online, I see this almost everywhere, that white people especially and especially well-meaning white people tend to hide from this discussion because they're really afraid of saying the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. Right. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I personally have a belief where uh, you're going to make mistakes in this. And when you do, you learn from them. Right. But at least get out there and, and talk about it and get into it. Right. Mm -hmm. But uh, just, in terms of getting started, in terms of taking that look at yourself, that hard look and, and trying to understand where your historic bias does come from, what would you recommend as a first step to make sure that you can open that door and get going? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, you know, as far as like our students are concerned or psychology training is concerned, there are so many reflexive activities that folks can engage in to check their economic privilege, their racial privilege, their hetero privilege, all of those things. And sometimes, you know, we kind of know that, but when you actually sit down and write it down and realize, oh, wow, like out of eight, you know, potential demographics, I'm, fr I'm within the privilege group in seven of them. Right. That's pretty eye-opening. Um, in terms of having those conversations, I think folks have to come to it with cultural humility. 
right? Mm -hmm. Which, which is kind of, you know, this deep internal desire to understand and stand with others. It's not an intellectual understanding. I mean, that obviously is important. But beyond that, there has to be a, almost a natural empathy for diversity. And that will, you know, help folks kind of move forward. And I think it's important to listen. And I don't, and I think it's interesting that you say so many folks are staying silent because they're worried about saying the wrong thing. Um, and so, you know, we could certainly have more conversation, but while they're being silent, are they taking it in? Are they paying attention? Are they listening? Um, because I think that's important as well. And the, the initial reaction we often have, all of us, is when something, you know, comes up that doesn't sit with us is we disagree. And sometimes those conversations or debates happen prematurely. Mm -hmm. There's a lot that can be done before to kind of process what we're hearing and try to understand the other person's perspective. Um, I talk about this frequently, even with, you know, I have a very small private practice and this has come up in all of my um, most recent session because the three women that I work with are racialized women and it was almost copy paste the conversations we were having and right. something, you know, that was said in one of those meetings, which really resonated with me is when this person at work says something, people just pay attention and believe that fact or that experience. When I say something, I have to prove that what I'm experiencing is true. I have to prove that what I'm saying has validity because it's so different than what most people have said. Right. And to me, that really summed up the experience that people of color, myself included, experience day in and day out. Um, that discounting of a different experience. That right. dismissive attitude, as Mr. Singh was talking about yesterday in one of the news Mm -hmm. that I saw. And I guess it sort of goes back to the dominant culture being the default culture and everything mm -hmm. else appearing to be foreign in relation to <clears> that, <throat> uh, especially yeah. when you're, when that's what you have lived in for your whole life, right? Yeah, it's the group of comparison, right? And um, if we bring it back to psychology, it's often the group of comparison in so many studies which becomes quite problematic because then the white group, you know, broadly defined becomes not just the group of comparison, but the, what folks, what you want to see people achieve or attain. So it gets really scary when you start comparing, you know, apples and oranges because they're two different, experiences yeah so how and you have a very small private practice how has that changed in the last few months with with covid and everything well yeah it's been 
it's been a juggle because my children have been home since March 13th. Right. Um, and the office, you know, that I would go to once a week has been closed down. Um, it closed down temporarily. I think some people were still going in to do their telehealth, telepsychology from there mm-hmm. so that they wouldn't be disturbed by their children. Yeah. Um, but, you know, for me personally, I haven't been able to go back to the office because my kids are home every day. So to carve out even a five-hour block where I can go out, I don't have childcare. My husband is in essential services. He's at work. Um, and so to add that to my plate, I just ha- would have been too much. So um, it's changed in that, yeah, we're doing sessions over Zoom, over the phone. Um, some people who hadn't, you know, come in for a few months came back because under the stress, things were bubbling up. Some folks um, have been coming more specifically to address racial issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and some some folks have been coming a little bit more because their anxiety has, you know, flared up again under all of this stress. And then other folks are doing better because they don't have to deal with their coworkers or their social anxiety and that sort of thing. Right. Um, right. I imagine it's certainly yeah. been a juggle. I imagine so. And I'm wondering, uh, the people who need a little bit more help at this time, is it easier because you can sort of check in once, twice a week for a few minutes over a zoom call or a Microsoft teams or something like that? Uh, rather than having them come all the way into the office? Mm. I think having more flexibility is certainly helpful. Um, You know, when I can only go to the office one afternoon a week because the rest of the time I'm doing my full-time job in academia, that certainly limits um, availability. And also there's only so many people that can fit into a five-hour block. Um, so right now, yeah, I have been able to do, you know, a session on Monday evening, a session on Wednesday evening, um, a consult here, a consult there. Um, so I would say that it has been, there have been some benefits. And also, we'd have to ask the clients how they feel, but I feel like it hasn't really changed the quality of our relationship, the quality of care. Um, but maybe they feel differently not having the in-person contact. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think we're, I think we're going to have a whole lot of studies on that coming out of this COVID uh, at the end of it. Uh, it looks as though at the moment though, from everything I've read, that it is about equal, the in-person care versus telecare, uh, that mm-hmm. the, res- the responses and the results are uh, quite similar in the, in the end. Which is interesting because, um, this is not something that was done much in psychology training um, or, you know, among psychologists, the norm was often in person. Um, like EAPs have been using different types of teleplatforms for years. Mm-hmm. But in terms of even our own accreditation standards or CPA accreditation standards only count direct client count contact when it's in person so anything done over the phone or over zoom or whatnot that was allowed with supervision 
but it wasn't counted towards the minimum hours that students needed to achieve. So, of course, you know, they didn't have many of those extra hours because it's hard enough to get your minimum hours. Um, now we know that everything's going to change, you know, right. all these um, psychology bodies are looking at things differently, but, you know, psychology as a field in terms of training was a little bit behind in terms of not accepting those online hours and not not training students to do those online hours. Yeah, I, I think that's, uh, it's going to be fascinating to see where it all goes from here uh, as everything Definitely. does change. Uh, I do want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me, but before I let you go, I just noticed something right now that I wanted to ask yeah. you about. So often yeah. I see in people's email signatures that at the end yeah. they'll say something along the lines of, I acknowledge that you know, my office lies on the unceded territory of indigenous people. And that's about it. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I just want to read yours out in, in its entirety here. Okay. I respectfully acknowledge that the University of Calgary is located on the traditional ancestral unceded territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Sixia or Sixika, Pikani, and Kainye. First Nations, the Tsutina First Nation, and the Stony Nakoda, including the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. I also respectfully recognize that the city of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3. That is a whole lot to put in, and I'm very impressed with the specificity of it. And I just my I guess my question is, what is the reason for so much specificity that uh, every single uh, part of the Blackfoot Confederacy gets acknowledged in that way and that sort of thing? Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, there are multiple um, people and structures that have been responsible for helping so many of us acknowledge and recognize these critical pieces. And, um, you know, uh, the program in Calgary is one of the lucky ones that actually has an Indigenous scholar working in it. I think um, the CPA report that came out in 2018 reported that there were 12 registered psychologists who, ident who were Indigenous across the country. Mm -hmm. That's small, right? Yes. And let's hope that the number has gone up a little bit in the past couple of years. Um, but of those 12, not all are housed in academia. So, you know, to be in a program with an Indigenous scholar um, is an honor and a privilege. And the university as a whole has worked on things like acknowledgments, and they've drafted, you know, there's a short acknowledgment, there's a long acknowledgment, and you can kind of decide which one you use. It, at any given moment. Um, and I think for me, I'm putting trust in my Indigenous friends and scholars that if they're telling me that this is important, I am going to believe their experience. And more than that, I'm going to get informed about the importance of doing an acknowledgement. Um, I don't know about where you are, but in Alberta, acknowledgements have almost become like 
just a robotic introduction now in so many meetings. Yes, a lot of the time it is like that here too, right? And we acknowledge that we're on unceded Algonquin territory here in Ottawa, and then we move on to the meeting, right? And it's, yeah. Yeah. So it's starting to, you know, it was great to see at the beginning that this was being introduced, but now I think it's starting to lose its meaning when folks do it just because they feel like if they don't, they're going to get in trouble. Or if they don't, you know, somebody's going to be offended. Um, And I think what helps is to kind of personalize it, um, maybe, you know, an anecdote with it when you're introducing it. Um, I love what the head of our department is doing at UBC. Every meeting starts not only with the acknowledgement, but um, a new teaching so that, you know, we have at least, you know, a little bit at the start of each meeting about a teaching about the Muslim people or something that the head has learned or been reflecting on. And so that's a nice way, I think, of making it um, more meaningful and less, you know, obligatory. Yeah, Um, I like that a lot. And I do remember a few years ago, I went to a seminar on agroecology. And so basically it's the indigenous way of farming, right? The uh, over the years Mm -hmm. uh, creating agriculture not through monocultures, but rather through the relationship of one crop to another and that sort of thing. And afterwards, we all split up into discussion groups. And I was in a group, I think about six people, and I wasn't very familiar with the subject, so I said, I'll take notes and I'll, you know, but everyone else went around the group. And all of them did a very unique and very... uh, you know, uh, extensive land acknowledgement before they introduced themselves. And it was like once one person had done it, then everyone else felt they had to do it. We ended up having no time for the group discussion because the <laughs> land acknowledgements had taken up so much of the time. And uh, so we ended up five minutes quickly. What do you think of agroecology? Okay, we'll write it down and we'll move on. Um, but then I, that's when I kind of thought that, yeah, something like, Let's teach something. Let's actually learn a specific thing so we can take that away. That would be an amazing way to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, like you said before, we need the conversation. So, of course, folks are, you know, um, uncomfortable or not sure how to have it. Um, but if we, yeah, if we keep biting our tongue, then we're not going to engage in those meaningful conversations. And sometimes it has to get a little spicy to, you know, move forward. Um, So I've been, you know, really lucky to be surrounded by so many um, prominent scholars who have dedicated their life to this work and who have put themselves out there time and time again and who did not have the same career opportunities that I've had because at the time, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago, it was a completely different situation. Um, We think it's bad now, but it was probably worse back then with so many of my mentors being the only women in their department, 
um, the only person of color, if there even was a person of color, the only queer person, if there even was a queer person. And so the, you know, the, the fight, the uphill battle that they had to um, lead is, you know, um, I don't want to compare apples and oranges again, but they really had a lot of systemic barriers in their way. And so that cost them. That cost them in terms of promotion, publication, research grants, all of those things, um, which is a whole, you know, there's a lot more doors open for people like myself now to be able to do that work and not have to prove it's important um, or not have to, you know, that it's still, an, there's still a lack of balance, but there's more opportunities now, I think. And if there's any time to address this head on, I hope that it's now. I hope that it is too. I think that's a great place to leave it. Thank you for putting yourself out there and having these discussions with me and with everybody else and, uh, you know, moving this conversation forward. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you for taking the time to, to chat with me. It's been my pleasure.